Pretty Policeman, Multiple Paradox Net Files. These are some of The Little Darlings. It's great to be gay. Our favourite episode titles. Right on, sister. Please be gentle. From all three seasons of the logbooks. You might well be very angry. So we've printed them on a t-shirt and a poster. Crash pad needed. Kiss my rump. And our limited stock is for sale at thelogbooks.org. Interested and willing? With profits going to Switchboard. Thank you for being here. So take a look at thelogbooks.org slash shop. This episode contains stories about murder and child sex abuse. This is a logbook entry from November 3rd, 1983. Tonight on Channel 4 News, 7 to 8pm, there will be another item about young homeless people in London, including an interview with Switchboard volunteer and displaying prominently Switchboard's phone number, we hope. There could be extra calls. This is logbook entry, Tuesday 20th March 1984. BBC Two are going to rerun the Horizon programme on AIDS, Panic in the Village, with updated figures on Monday 2nd April. Last time this programme went out, it produced a 300% surge in medical calls over the next week. So it's going to be very important for us to get up to date on the various sources of myth and anxiety. You get a sense from these kinds of logbook entries of volunteers feeling like there's this oncoming tidal wave of of calls when the number is going to be featured in in the media or when an issue like HIV AIDS is going to be featured in the media like in these in these documentaries. It's just interesting to see the volunteers kind of like organize themselves to get ready for that. Yeah, I think it's a definite shift from the first period that we covered in season one and now there is so much media coverage and there is so much negative media coverage. There's another logbook entry on this uh, theme in particular that's from November the 8th, 1982 and um, it's really short. All it says is Radio 4, you and yours, goes out at 12 noon today. Expect extra calls. Actually, what I really like in this logbook entry is the section underneath, which is, why wasn't the rotor secretary warned to get extra staff on the phones? Annoyed rotor secretary. <laughs> and then someone else has put, because I'm into panic scenes. Is the person who wrote the original entry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're listening to The Logbooks, stories from Britain's LGBTQ plus history and conversations about being queer today. In partnership with Switchboard, the LGBT plus helpline. I'm Adam Smith. And I'm Tash Walker. In this season, we're reading through the notes made by the volunteers who took calls between 1983 and 1991. This is episode five, Expect Extra Calls. And the theme is the media. The people that we've spoken to for this episode include some people behind some of the major TV programmes covering gay and lesbian life in the 80s, someone who fought the homophobic press with uh, pink paint, and the switchboard volunteers, of course, who gave out the most up-to-date information about HIV-AIDS, which was more than you got from the news at the time. Whenever one of these programmes was on television positive or negative, we would make sure that all of the phones were staffed because come hell or high water, people would be ringing us in their droves afterwards. This is a logbook entry from February 18th, 1984. 
On Tuesday 21st of February, Eastern Eye on Channel 4 is running an item about Asian gays in Leicester. At the end of the programme, they will show our number as a place for info, advice, etc. So brush up on your relevant info, and if you remember, log any calls from Asian gays or to do with their programme in the special surveys bit of the log sheet. And then three days later, another logbook entry. Only nine calls resulting from Switchboard's number being flashed on Channel 4 yesterday. And finally, another volunteer writes, What? Nine viewers on Channel 4? Unbelievable. On the TV and on the press and in the media in the 80s and 90s, what I didn't see was me. And by that, I didn't see men that looked like me. I didn't see our stories and hear our narratives. So I was obsessed with representation from way back then. And, you know, we mentioned out on Tuesday, um, I called them up, put in a complaint about lack of representation. And they asked me to come on. And I shit myself. I was like, no, I can't do that. I live in Brixton. I'm, you know. And again, so I didn't come out. But there's, there's the narrative, right? Is that we want it, but there are systems and stuff around us, which means we can't fully partake in that. So I could have come out about my HIV a lot earlier, but there was no way. The, the stuff that I would have faced would have been madness. I'm Mark Thompson. I'm 51. And I came out in the summer of 1985. Of course, Mark is talking about TV there um, and the lack of representation of people like him as a black man on TV. But we know that gay media had existed in print much, you know, long before TV. Gay News, for example, started in 1972 within a very, very underground inner circle of out lesbian and gay people. Um, but TV was a sort of new and emerging area where we were starting to see more representation of LGBTQ plus people. There was this new program that came out in the early 80s called uh, Gay Life and it was on like regular mainstream TV uh, and it was um, made by a bunch of people that said they wanted to make uh, TV programs for gays and lesbians and by gays and lesbians because they knew that they had to represent like the full LGBTQ plus spectrum on TV um, or at least make an attempt at that. This is South London. Different parts of London like this have their own gay scenes. Although they're only a small part of the total picture, it's worth looking at some of them because they tell us a great deal about the way gay men have been changing over the last decade. Thank you very much. Thank you for that nice big hand on my opening. You said all the basic things that this, this was the first ever the current affairs programme about gay matters by gay people. It was the end of interpreting gay people or the end of ha having them explained themselves by somebody who wasn't, as it were. That's Alison Hennigan. She was a presenter and producer on Gay Life. It's all material, no matter what way you wear it. The drag scene within the gays is fun in pubs, as entertainment on the TV, anywhere you like. But as far as scenes go between between different guys. Um, we find that the drag queens are the ones that give the rest of us a bad name. We're, we're not into drag queens or camp or effeminate. Uh, I think that if people want to wear leather, they've got a right to wear it because that's the uniform they choose. I choose my own uniform, so does Marilyn. I think it's really pathetic, like all these really camp queens like dress up in leather and think they're really butch, but they're not. It's like trying to hide their gayness. And they tried as much as they could to get the whole production team gay. So the researchers, of course, were gay. We didn't. They, the head of um, cinematography, though not gay, was female, and that was quite important because it was very unusual at that point. But she was a very, very well-regarded 
um, cinematographer. I, I think those programmes came into being because of some quite serious ideas, one of which is about the capacity of television to educate, another of which is about the responsibility of television uh, to, to try to tell things truthfully the responsibility of television to acknowledge that it has a, a very diverse potential viewership, but perhaps the best things happen when rather just narrowly targeting and doing niche work where 98% of the population will decide they're not even going to bother to watch, you try to do something which which keeps open the possibility that, that people will, even if not gay um, and not either mad by earth, well, so I don't know much about that, but I'm quite interested, or I do know a bit about that, because Uncle Bob or Cousin Ted or my brother or whatever. Um, so I'd like to watch those things. I can't remember why I, at one stage, did a massive slounce and nearly left, with little understanding of the fact that if I had really left, I would immediately have found myself in big financial trouble, because I would have signed contracts, you know. It must have been a line, a line being taken in one of the programmes. But I, I, in effect, was saying, well... well Let's not do this anymore then, or I, you know, I, I'm not doing this anymore then. Michael followed me out afterwards, uh, and we ended up sitting on a bench somewhere on the South Bank, I think, um, and, and Michael said, please, please don't, please, 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 please do stay on board. And we talked it through, and, um, and, and indeed I did. The current Oxford Dictionary defines a lesbian like this. A female homosexual, a woman characterised by sexual interest in other women. According to that definition, feeling sexually attracted to other women makes lesbians into a distinct species, a whole separate category of women. It probably comes as a surprise to many people to realise that that way of thinking of lesbians, as a breed apart, is comparatively recent. It's not very much more than a hundred years old. So today, in gay life, we'll be seeing how that attitude came into being, what its effects have been, and how some lesbians today are challenging it. To have a TV programme made by lesbian and gay people is groundbreaking, really, is what it is. But I think you have to be careful to navigate that um, when you've been a super maligned community. And we've got some Switchboard logbook entries about how Switchboard handled this issue about where it wanted to appear as like a charity, right? This is a logbook entry from the 8th of December 1988. Jeff in inverted commas, of Pilot, which was a Christian anti-gay group, is once again advertising his counselling for the homosexually inclined in the music magazine NME. And then in brackets, next to our ads, question mark, and elsewhere. You can ring him on the number advertised to check out his services. It's a pretty depressing experience. Basically, the NME will withdraw his ad if they receive letters, not phone calls, complaining that it is misleading. The ad gives a sympathetic impression. Please can volunteers, especially NME regular readers, write and complain. Jeff pops up at regular intervals and is funded by right-wing family and morality groups. So that logbook entry was from 88 and uh, a couple of years earlier from that, switchboard volunteers were like really enthusiastic about advertising in the NME. This is a logbook entry from May the 8th, 1984. The NME has a very positive article on gays this week about Bronsky Beat, the band, which are also featured on the front cover. It'd be stupid not to advertise in the publication as a follow-up to this sort of article. 
So it's interesting to think about these two logbook entries kind of uh, like with a couple of years between them and like this ongoing debate about do we advertise in this publication or in that publication and what do we get out of it and you know what's right to put switchboard alongside in in publications basically. I think yeah just deciding where to advertise in printed media is, is is a really important thing. You know, this is a period of time where a TV programme will air and then that's it. If you miss it, you miss it. Uh, something goes out in a magazine, in a newspaper, it's there. You know, these are, these are things that we still talk about today. I think printed media is still a really important way to communicate out to people who might need switchboards help. Um, I, I think it's really interesting as well in that first entry that I read about the conversion therapy effectively and how... This is something in 2020, when we're recording this now, that it still has not been banned in the UK. As with all of these things throughout the logbooks, when we look back, we have to look today and we have to look forward. And that, I think, is really shocking. By far and away, the biggest um, thing that caused the biggest problems in this time in terms of the media was the printed tabloid press and their like continued like linguistic uh, attacks and persecution of LGBT life. Not only were they talking about gay issues, they became almost obsessed with it. And it was an every day it was gay this and gay that, but it was getting increasingly aggressive they used the gay issue the, to attack what they call the loony left. You know, the, 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 the loony left is uh, giving half the rape precept to gay youth clubs and lesbian this and all that. You know, it was, it was a pack of lies from beginning to end. Somebody had to contradict it. So that was my job. Hello, my name is Terry Sanderson and I first started writing the Media Watch column for the gay press during the 80s. You know, they, I'd been writing regularly for them, all kinds of different kinds of stuff. One month the editor came and said, well, well, you know, the press is getting a little bit aggressive. Would you like to explore that in an article? So I did. And he said, oh, that went down very well. Let's have another one next month and, you know, make it regular for a while. So that went on for 25 years. By the end of the week, I had a stack of newspapers a mile high that had to be gone through to look for stories. There were no press agencies or no Google to do it for you. I actually had to physically go through it uh, by hand and cut out the relevant bits. They all had to go in the dustbin. There was no recycling at that stage. <laughs> it was bad. And if I went on holiday for a fortnight, I'd come back and the news agent had kept all these newspapers for me and his shop would be over piled high with all this stuff that I had to go and collect, sometimes two carloads at a time. Politicising of gay rights was was very annoying because you know they, that papers like The Sun were making it up. They would make up stories about how Labour controlled local authorities, spending, as I, I said, half their re rate precept on gay rights. They would and they'd give them, you know, 20 quid to the local gay youth group or something. And it would be splashed across the papers as though they were squandering money left, right and centre. And when the gay London Lesbian and Gay Centre opened in London, uh, Ken Livingston, of course, was a great supporter of gay rights. And he helped to get that open. Uh, and of course, the, the papers had an absolute field day with that. Um, but also... Uh, when they tried to introduce marriage equality, 
it was the worst, you know, the, the, the end of the world as we know it, as we heterosexuals know it, that is to say. Uh, when Ken Livingston started the registration program where you could register your partnership at City Hall in London, it didn't mean anything. It was just symbolic. Uh, but the papers went crazy again. So, of course, when the, the parliamentary debates came along about the age of consent, gays in the military, gay adoption and fostering and gay marriage, you can imagine they were not sympathetic. Listening to Terry um, talk about that time, all of this reverberating around the TV, you know, the television programmes, radio, print. It feels like it's just the kind of period where every, where everyone's arguing with each other and everyone's like jostling for power and jostling for attention. And a newspaper columnist knows that they can get attention simply by saying the most outrageous things against lesbians or something like that. Politicians also can capitalise on that because they know that if that's what's selling the newspaper, then um, that's a quote unquote popular opinion. And it's just like, oh, my God, so much like tension. And it doesn't feel that much different from now. One of the rallying cries for the hatred was a very harmless little book published by Gay Men's Press, of which I later became publisher, um, which was called Jenny Lives with Eric and Martin. And the book just showed a little girl called Jenny who lived with her two gay dads um, next door, I think, to her mother. But the point was that she lived with two men who were happily gay. My name is Neil Cavalier-Smith. I was a volunteer at Switchboard in the late 80s and early 90s. It was just intended to make it easier for kids who lived in less traditional re relationships to understand how the context of how they fitted into the world and that their life could be absolutely normal. And for people who had classmates who had less traditional families to understand that, yes, sometimes they would come up against um, prejudice or difficulty but that doesn't mean that, that that that's right and what they're doing is wrong that's just how they live it unfortunately had a typical Scandinavian image of the whole family rolling around in the duvet um, without pajamas on so I mean one can't see whether they were wearing bottoms but they certainly weren't wearing pajama tops but in 1980s England it just gave grist to the mill to ammunition to the campaign of people who were sort of trying to equate homosexuality with something to do with child abuse. In the middle of this period was the Local Government Act 1988, which controlled what local authorities could and couldn't do, including how to spend their money. And Section 28 of that Act was the thing that stopped local authorities from spending money on any recognition to do with um, homosexuality. Things around the world were getting very much better. But in the UK things were going into reverse and this new law, section 28, 27, 29, as it got renumbered as it passed through, became clause 28. It was aimed at preventing local authorities from allowing youth groups to meet. It was aimed at preventing books from getting into education resource centres and schools. The whole thing about Section 28 in general, which was, you know, a long time in coming and really part of the, uh, you know, the Thatcherite backlash of, uh, you know, family values. A bit like Queen Victoria, you know, they can do anything they like as long as they don't frighten the horses, darling. You know, Section 28 and the uh, 
promotion by a local authority of homosexuality as a, as a valid lifestyle uh, would not happen under a local authority with any local authority funding. So that did mean that libraries were taking down books like Dwarf Vidal, like Oscar Wilde. <laughs> um, because, well, they're homosexuals, and perhaps the picture of Dorian Day was really about really about no go on on that that so it frightened everybody and uh, 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 in libraries and it frightened everybody in teaching about not being able to talk about homosexuality it's really horrible to look back at these at these entries at these people's memories at these stories and think about what was at stake here whose lives were at stake here and you know as as us as two like queer people now in our 30s, um, the impact of this legislation that was passed on, on us as well. Mm-hmm. Right. Because they were then linking uh, gay rights with child abuse. You know, oh, we've got to protect our children from the sodomites and all that kind of stuff. And again, it was the Christians who were leading the charge, but they they had an awful lot of support in the newspapers, column after column after column, really, really hostile. Me and some friends, we, 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 we actually lodged a complaint with the Press Complaints Commission. And we were told that Pufta was acceptable language. And that's because it was at that point. I mean, not acceptable if you were gay. I'm Matthew Hodson. I first went to a gay club in 1983 when I was 15. So one night, this was before Section 28 had passed, me and some friends, I have to admit, we had had a few drinks and we just went and bought some paint and we literally painted Fleet Street pink. We paint daubed pink triangles over all the newspaper offices in Fleet Street until we got arrested. And it was kind of like, it wasn't even that we were trying to do it and not get arrested. We wanted to make a point. We wanted to get the attention because it felt like when we tried to pursue the normal conventional channels, no one paid any attention. We were just dismissed and we were so angry and so frustrated that our lives were being traduced in this way that we had to do something. We had to take action. We, well, we were treated but with contempt. We were thrown into a cell. Um, uh, we weren't given water or anything like that. Uh, yeah, it was pretty shoddy. Um, we went to trial. Um, I was banned to keep the peace for a year. I mean, it hadn't been a violent crime. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think we were bound over to keep the peace because it was politically motivated. I think it, 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 the, there may have been a more severe penalty um, if it hadn't been that, if it had just been an act of random vandalism. I look back on it now and I don't think, oh, wow, this is an amazing action. I mean, I think it was, you know, kind of in some respects, I think it was quite silly. I wish we'd coordinated something a bit stronger. But I don't regret doing it in terms of, I know why I did it. When experiencing any form of oppression, there are several ways in which you can respond to it, like Matthew did through direct action, but also... Through a formal complaint, which is what Terry did. I thought, how far can this be pushed? You know, all this this talk of puffs and puffters and 
batty boys and bum boys. You know, the language was really, really extreme. Uh, and I thought this is creating an atmosphere in this country of real homophobia, real hatred. I mean, there's a lot of homophobia anyway. There always has been, and I suspect there always will be. But they were encouraging it and inflaming it. And I, I, I didn't know where it was going to end. I thought, I'm, I'll try and use the press council to stop them using this inflammatory language. And I, I made several complaints to the press council, all of which took weeks and weeks to resolve and then were rejected. It's, it's run by, by the editors of the newspapers themselves who have to, you know, rule on complaints. And if you made a complaint, there would, there, everything had to be done by letter. Eventually, the press council was, the, the, the uh, chairmanship was taken over by Louis Blom Cooper, who was a sort of liberal lawyer. And I thought we might have a chance now. So I made a complaint about Gary Bushell and his so-called TV reviews, which were incredibly vicious towards gay people. And uh, Blom Cooper upheld one of those. And that... Uh, about the use of words like faggots and, and um, batties and all the kind of stuff that, that the, these right-wing columnists absolutely loved. He was saying things like, uh, on the 1990, Sun, dated 21st of March, said, it must be true what they say about nobody, nobody being all bad, even Stalin banned puffs. Puffs and puffters was the words that they used and which were ruled to be unacceptable. He argued that it was the language of the Sun Reader, and I'm afraid it might well have been. I write a whole chapter in, in my book Media Watch about the difference in approach between the, the printed media and the broadcast media, and quite different. For all the homophobia that was spewing out of the tabloids, the, the broadcasters were doing their best to keep a level head, give proper information, put Claire Rayner on, showing you how to put a condom and a banana, and all that kind of thing, taking it really seriously. Whereas the tabloids were fear-mongering, the TV was trying to give you the facts, and it was just as frightening, but it was a frightening time. And now we're going to hear from previous volunteer Femi, who was often seen in front of the camera and was never afraid to speak her views. I think the first time I was asked to appear on camera was Claire Rayner's case book. So that would have been early 80s. It could have been 83. I was nervous occasionally because I was starstruck. I was completely smitten by Claire Rayner. Um, I didn't have a remit to speak for the black, lesbian and gay community, and certainly not the black, lesbian community. We didn't have spokespeople like that. Oh, it was only that I had the freedom. I had the social, financial and political freedom to be out as a lesbian and as a black lesbian at that. Um, so, you know, I wasn't so invested, and this is quite interesting, I wasn't so invested in the black communities that I had any risk at all you know, that I would lose my friends or my family um, or, or, you know, any of the connections. I wasn't involved in churches. I wasn't uh, part of a huge... I am part of a huge family, but it wasn't, you know, based here and I wasn't dependent on them. So I had nothing to lose um, so I could use my voice. 
and not everybody was in that position. When I was being wheeled out in front of cameras and having mics put in front of my face, it didn't actually occur to me that I was being put up there as a spokesperson for my community. I was young, in my 20s. I, I, I don't think I was arrogant. I think I was just uh, clueless. I, I mean, I knew what I believed to be right. I was politically motivated. I went off to do it. I, never, I didn't see it in the context of, you know, are you, are, is this right? I never asked myself, I mean, you know, when you give your views on these things, do you stop for a second and think whether other black lesbians would like you to say that? <laughs> it didn't occur to me at all. So I would be perfectly understandable if lots of them were very annoyed. I think there's something really powerful uh, in seeing Femi represented in lots of these TV programmes from the time. And it sort of resonates with me and some things I've heard lots of people talk about now. um, And that's you cannot be what you cannot see. And even though, you know, at the time she says she doesn't recognise quite what she was representing... I think it has made a really, it had a really big impact on a lot of people. I know lots of people that we've spoken to talk about that. Definitely. And it's great that she was always willing and um, brave enough, actually, to go um, onto TV, to walk onto a TV set. Actually, in 1988, there was a bunch of other lesbians who were brave to go on a TV set in a slightly different way. And that was when the lesbians stormed the six o'clock BBC News. The six o'clock news from the BBC oh, yeah. with Sue Lawley and Nicholas Whittle. Six o'clock in the House of Lords, a vote is taking place now on a challenge to the poll tax. Tory rebels have said. And I do apologise if you're hearing quite a lot of noise in this studio at the moment. I'm afraid that um, we have rather been invaded by some people who we hope to be removing very shortly. In the meantime, if you can possibly ignore the background news, we'll bring the news as best we can. I remember distinctly I was on a teaching practice in St Helens um, on Merseyside. And um, I remember coming home from um, a day of teaching practice to my other housemates in our shared house in Liverpool and watching the six o'clock news. My name is Catherine Lee and I started to train to be a teacher in 1986. My closest friend in that house was heterosexual and I remember coming out to her a couple of years prior to that and her saying, oh, you're not, are you? Oh, no. Oh, Oh, I still want us to be friends. Oh, what a waste. What a waste. I remember the five of us in the house. and We'd not lived together that long. We were cooking for the whole house. So I remember that um, myself and one of the other girls had cooked a very disastrous meal that involved corned beef and potatoes, I think. It was, it was, it, it was fairly dreadful. The sofas were really uncomfortable. I think they were meant for conservatories because they've got kind of like cane arms and cane sides and and it it was not a really a very nice place to be but we felt so independent having you know living away from home and living together and I just remember feeling that it was that it was something serious but not sort of wanting the, the, the ground to swallow me up and wanting it to go away and I remember distinctly Nicholas Witchell and Sue Lawley reading the six o'clock news and then the, the lesbians invading the BBC studios, Nicholas Witchell going off air and Sue Lawley carrying on while there were these muffled sounds. We didn't know what it was, 
but you could barely hear them say stop section 28 so we we had a good idea the house that i shared there were there were five of us all training to be PE teachers three of them were uh, heterosexual so me and um and one other person that, that that was gay and i remember us both looking at each other um as the news was on and thinking crikey this is this is serious If we look back on season one, which started just after the um, partial decriminalisation of homosexuality in 67, um, one thing that certainly feels like we're going back in time now in season two is a representation of um, gay people in the tabloid press, especially when it comes to crimes. That's right. There was this case um, known as the Brighton Boy case in 1983. And the way that the media handled that is, I think, really telling Um uh, of, of the theme that you're talking about, Tash. So uh, this was a boy in Brighton. He was six years old. He was abducted by three men and sexually assaulted and left in the street. Now, because he was a boy and the perpetrators of that crime were men, the tabloid press conflated um, homosexuality with that level of paedophilia and um, abuse and criminality. And if we look at some logbook entries from this period of time, it gives you the sense of feverish atmosphere that was leading up to Section 28. This is a logbook entry from the 19th of August, 1983. Man phoned saying, watch your mail, threatening bombs aimed at gay centres because of the Brighton boy. And then another volunteer has written under that, later that day, a second bomb threat. If that boy dies, don't you have enough bombs to fuck? Which is, like, I mean, that's something. really threatening. Um, and kind of horrendous can't imagine getting that phone call yeah yeah this is a a logbook entry from 18th of august 1983 a phone call from brighton gay switchboard suggesting we advise callers to exercise caution when they go to gay pubs or clubs in brighton at the moment This is due to the massive publicity surrounding a recent sex attack on a child there. Uh, See the evening Argus on notice board. This has led to pubs and clubs attracting great attention from gangs of thugs who have been hanging around threatening customers. Media hacks from London, ITN and the Daily Mail are also to be found hanging around hoping for a good quote. Needless to say, the place is also full of plain clothes police and the places are also a lot emptier than usual. In this year, 1983, there was also another crime that made the news centering around homosexuality and that's mentioned in the logbooks here too. This is a logbook entry from October 26, 1983. Beware, both the Black Cap and the Golden Lion have so far been mentioned in press reports of the Nilsson trial. Should we caution callers to be on their guard since the location of both these pubs is now available to a large number of potential queer bashers? Um, Dennis Nilsson was a, a mass murderer of gay men. He murdered at least 12 young men between 1978 and 1983 in London. And this was a gift to the, to the tabloid papers because, of course, here we got a, a gay mass murderer. And it gave them the opportunity to paint this awful picture of gay life in London, 
you know, the awfulness of uh, squalid and seedy pubs where um, aimlessly drifting young men would congregate and be uh, shark bait for people like Dennis Nilsson. And it, it really was awful. I mean, in the Daily Mail wrote, there are middle-aged homosexual sharks who know that to homeless young lads, seduction might seem a small price to pay for a few nights in a warm bed. It gives the impression that Don Dennis Nelson found it easy to find these vulnerable young boys and uh, take them home and murder them. But the, the picture, the overall picture that they were painting of gay life in London was so squalid, it, it made it sound like you know the dregs of society... And yes, there are seedy places in London, but they're not all gay. Although they were they were drawing attention over and over again to the fact that this was this was a gay killer killing gay men. Never once did I hear a Peter Sutcliffe, the Yorkshire Ripper, referred to as a heterosexual man, uh, or a straight man murdering straight women. There just didn't seem any justification for them drawing attention constantly to the, the, these people's sexuality. I mean, it was tragic, you know, for, for these young people to be murdered was a tragedy. And they were reduced to being just lumps of sordid flesh as far as the, as far as the papers were concerned. Oh, well, my memories of Nielsen are very complex because I knew the last person he killed, Stephen, uh, and that was very difficult. I was working with Stephen through a homelessness project in the West End at the time. So that was horrible and very close to home. I mean, we're talking decades ago, but it was a real whoa at the time. And it was it was a shudder that went through the kids who were homeless in the West End uh, because he was a very popular character there. But there were real issues with paedophiles who tried to get onto our accommodation service and later our employment service, real issues with um, paedophiles trying to even, you know, get, get involved with us in other ways. And we kept a list throughout the 80s. It was a very quiet list, but it was a list in the front of the accommodation service, a list in the front of the employment service, and a list in training group of people who we considered were at the very least dubious and in some cases convicted paedophiles who we did not want anywhere near us. God, that's quite chilling, isn't it, from Lisa? Yeah, and it's this conflation of paedophilia with murderers and gay men, which was part of how gay men were demonised in the 80s, especially like in the media as a battleground for that. Totally. And today we're seeing this misrepresentation and totally unfair portrayal of transgender and gender non-conforming people in the media. Yeah. But trans and queer people are fighting back against bad representation. And sometimes even inside media organisations, they are not monolithic. They're full of lots of people with conflicting views. And so here is a story from the logbooks about a person at one such organisation, the BBC. This is a logbook entry from April 3rd, 1984. Man who works at BBC called, outraged at sensationless and alarmist nature of AIDS programme, would like us to put in an official complaint on basis of huge floods of calls we get, especially as he would like to raise a bit of a stink within the BBC 
and this would give him strong ammunition. No doubt the BBC will have a fair idea of our feelings towards that programme, but something specific in writing always helps. Can someone organise this? The caller also informed me that the controller of BBC Two is gay. Thought you'd like to know. We thought about how to reflect on the media today, and we realised here at Low Books that we are the media. <laughs> That's right. Um, Adam is a former journalist. Shivani is a current journalist, and I'm on social media. Uh, so, so we thought we would have a chat with Shivani about how the media is today. It's really weird being on the side of the mic. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we talk a lot about representation in the logbooks, um, both behind the scenes and also throughout the podcast episodes. Is there anything that you can think of that makes you reflect back on that in the context of today? Mark was making a really good point in this episode about how he never saw any gay black men. And that's not to say there weren't any gay black men. It's just that they weren't being the ones who were put in front of the cameras or put in front of the microphones. And I think we have been we have started to get better with that, but largely the LGBT representation that we do have in the media is still so cis and so white. And as things are trying to slightly progress and we're getting more and more aware of different intersections and intersectionality, um, there are people who are trying to eke out all of those different nuances and experience and lived experience. I think it's worth us just um, giving our listeners an update on what we're talking about when we're referring to cis and trans. So trans, when we're talking about that, means transgender, which means that you don't align with the gender you were assigned at birth. And cisgender is someone who does align with the gender that they're assigned at birth. Do you think that there's been more progress in who is telling the stories these days? Yes and no. I think it depends on what kind of stories are being told. If you're reporting on a news piece and there are straight up facts, those stories were largely told by straight people and cis people all throughout the history of of time. And now those stories are still being told by largely cis and straight people. But that is the job of a journalist to just say, to, to report the facts and tell you what has happened. Um, now there are more initiatives and more queer people in media telling their stories because I don't think it's I don't think it's been the case that queer people weren't in working in the media industries. I think there's been a lack of being able to tell the stories that they've experienced and the stories that they they resonate with. Shivani, thinking about the point that you made about positive representation and visibility, could you? Tell us a little bit from your own experience about that. It's like, okay, so I'm brown for for record. <laughs> I'm brown and queer, which means that when I walk down the street or when my picture is on the website at work saying, "Oh, this person's presenting this show," that comes up and people can see that I'm brown, and and that's that's a really good bit of representation. And people need to be able. To, you can't be what you can't see, so people need to know that they've got opportunities in that area if they want to. And for me, as a kid. When I was growing up, I wanted to see people who looked like me doing the jobs that I wanted to do. But if you're queer, largely, you can't tell that someone's queer. Like, unless they've 
got a badge saying hello I'm queer which some people do and I respect it but you can't you can't always tell so I think in my role I recently came out as non-binary on the radio and I I, I did that because I just thought it was so important to let people who may not necessarily feel like they've got a specific place in society or may not necessarily feel like they fit in with the very binary world that we live in just let them know that that it's okay to navigate this world that isn't necessarily built for you because you know you'll still I'll still fill out forms and it'll be like are you a man or woman and I'm like dude (laughs) there's not a specific way to be and that's the whole thing about there's no one way to look male or female or non-binary so I just feel like as somebody who has a position that can be quite a job that can be quite public um, and is public facing it's almost like partly a duty to let the people who come after me know that it's going to be okay for them because there are people there before them trying to pave a way that lets them live a comfortable life. But coming out publicly in that way also means people interpret you or project onto you uh, the role of an activist. Well, I'm not an activist. (laughs) I'm just living my life. And I think that that's what a lot of queer people are doing and and LGBTQ plus people are doing. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it happens so much. Like someone will come out and then immediately they're asked to speak on 10 different issues that affect whatever community that they're part of now. Um, Not that they haven't always been part of that community, but as as it wasn't public knowledge before, people, people... didn't care about what their opinions were on those things before they said that they were aligned with it. So there are people who do want to lobby governments and they do want to campaign and and that's a really valid choice and I respect that because if it wasn't for people having campaigned, I, I wouldn't be able to live the life that I have right now. So I really respect that. But me and my job and coming out wasn't a campaigning stunt. It wasn't like activism, it was just breathing it was just existing and being like honest about who I am how do you think social media has changed this whole conversation and this whole topic of the media and representation compared to uh, in 1983 to 91 when social media just did not exist you mean there was a time before Instagram (laughs) yes Um, believe it or not I think and there will be a time after Instagram too (laughs) After I came out and um, there were a number of news articles written about me, loads of people from all sorts of different places got in touch with me, um, either to sort of support me and and give me some solidarity, which was really great because it was a really vulnerable time in my life. And that that was really, really nice. And there were other people who were coming to me and saying, I didn't know that that was a thing and now I've read up on it and I think that maybe I've either a learned something new or b I think that's maybe me too like I think I'm the same and that's also great because it means that you can start to reach out and connect with people but then equally it was quite bad specifically for me with this example my social media was sort of linked to these articles that were written and and in in having the media publicize me and who I am meant that there were people who were therefore made aware of me that they wouldn't they wouldn't have known who I was before they were made aware of me and decided to start like sending me awful messages to the point where it was like harassment 
I remember you telling me about this when it was all happening. Um, how are you doing today? I think I'm coping quite well. It's always weird having your life being thrown into the public eye, especially when that's not who I am. I'm not like a celebrity. I'm not like it came out of nowhere for me. All things considered, there was a bumpy road in the middle, but I'm doing okay. And I think it's largely down to having supportive friends IRL in real life and just understanding how to use the protective measures that you can on social media and and how vital and important they are. Yeah, I couldn't agree with that more. Um, It's been so nice chatting to you on this side of the podcast um, in front of the mic, Shivani. Yeah. It's like the mask is off. (laughs) (laughs) It's been great. And we also have to remember to cover television because one of the things that you might have noticed in this season of the podcast is these clips from these old TV programmes, which is in part thanks to the work of Simon McCallum at the BFI National Archive. And we had a quick chat with Simon about the archive, what's in there, and why it's important to preserve that kind of media and stay engaged with it. So the BFI National Archive looks after enormous number of films and TV programmes. You're looking at over a million titles, actually. And of that, maybe two-thirds are actually television. A lot of people don't realise how much TV we look after. So it's a massive part of the work we do, both in preservation and programming. And one area that I've really been sort of digging down into in my time at the BFI is LGBT representation, both in film and television. My name's Simon McCallum, and I'm Archive Projects Curator at the BFI, which is the British Film Institute. In the 80s, the the power of television really comes into its own when we're looking at the how the HIV-AIDS epidemic began to be discussed and represented on screen. And it's, it's really television that was important here as opposed to cinema, whereas over in America you had... Um, feature films like Buddies, groundbreaking films like that, Longtime Companion. But in Britain, it was very much a case of, of television kind of addressing and dealing with the epidemic. And that's not to say that not it wasn't in a problematic way, because unfortunately, while there were some real, really compassionate kind of programming around AIDS that was specifically looking at the experiences of gay men, as the decade wore on and as Thatcher's kind of conservative government started to dig their heels in and it became increasingly moralistic with legislation like Section 28. The programming sort of took a step away from addressing the specific concerns of the gay community and started to focus on how the epidemic was a risk to the heterosexual population um, or normal folk as they sort of coded them very often in their language. And there's kind of interesting scenes in some of the documentaries about AIDS that were being made towards the end of the 80s, where the shift was very much towards young, sexually active people. In some cases, they would talk about injecting drug users in Scotland, for instance. There was various pieces up in Scotland where there was a real you know, hub of the, the epidemic up there among drug users. So there would be these other groups, haemophiliacs, that were sort of focused on. But young, sexually active heterosexuals became the main focus of the, the both the government campaign and the broader media sort of depiction of, of the issue. And so you would get young people being interviewed saying that, you know, why, why would you why would you wear condoms? It's like eating a Mars bar with a wrapper on, you know, and they're kind of going out to bars and interviewing these young people. 
and it's a reminder that it wasn't just about convincing gay men to wear condoms it was about the wider population and again it takes us back to the famous aids advert in 87 and the subsequent messaging from the government which again there was a lot of uh, back and forth and arguing about the the accuracy the usefulness the um the clarity of the message and so nowadays yes we have many more channels of communication we have social media we have um, a lot more at our disposal and a lot more representation of all sorts of diverse groups but yet at the same time we're still in a position where we're very much arguing about a lack of clarity so you know in some ways not an awful lot has, has changed despite the massive increase in communication so there's a number of ways you can actually explore our collections now as we sort of digitize more and more of the archive. So online we've got BFI Player where we've now got over 10,000 films from the BFI National Archive, but also partner archives around the UK. And as part of that project, which was called Britain on Film, there's a big collection called LGBT Britain where you can explore various kind of examples of how um, the community was sort of represented in TV and film over the years. Um, if you're in London, you, you really should visit our Mediatek at BFI South Bank, where we're able to make loads more stuff available that we can't put online for rights reasons. So particularly talking about TV, you've got incredible resources in there of, of television from the 80s and 90s. You could just get lost in those old TV programmes held by the BFI National Archive. Or you could stick around here for the next episode of The Logbooks. Both equally appealing, but we're <laughs> going to continue our journey from 83 to 91 through the logbook entries and stories about how queer people felt throughout this period of time. Calls to Switchboard are confidential, so to bring the logbooks to life, we've changed the callers' names. The Logbooks is produced by Shivani Dave, Tash Walker and Adam Smith, in partnership with Switchboard, the LGBT plus helpline. If you think other people would like the logbooks, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. These ratings and reviews really help others to discover the show. You can send us your feedback and stories to hello at thelogbooks.org or join the conversation on social media with the hashtag TheLogbooks. Our music is by Tom Foskett Barnes and our artwork is by Natalie Dotto. Thanks to Steph Dickers and team at the Bishopsgate Institute, the BFI National Archive, the folks at ACAST, MACE, the Media Archive for Central England, Peter Zaccaroli at West Digital, Content is Queen, the staff and volunteers at Switchboard, and all the contributors who shared their stories. Switchboard continues to take phone calls from 10am to 10pm every day. If you're affected by any of the issues in this podcast or need to discuss anything to do with your gender identity or sexuality, you can call Switchboard on 0300 330 0630, email chris at switchboard.lgbt or instant message via switchboard.lgbt where you can also donate money or time to help.